This is Cody Beers with the Wyoming Department of Transportation. YDOT is proud to help bring you the Indian Relay podcast and to partner with the Eastern Shoshone and Northern Arapaho tribes. Our goal is to help keep people safe on our local highways. Did you know that seatbelts are the single most effective traffic safety device for preventing death and injury? Simply wearing your seatbelt in a car reduces your risk of death in an accident by up to 45% and by 60% in a pickup truck. Let's celebrate life. Buckle up for life. The Indian Relay Podcast is made possible by the Institute of Tribal Learning at Central Wyoming College. The Institute coordinates American Indian services through continued education on historical and contemporary issues. CWC proudly serves the two nations of the Wind River Reservation, and through the Institute, they seek to provide positive influences to educate students, along with tribal and non-tribal community members on American Indian issues on a local and national scale. To support the Institute and its mission, or to learn more, more, email Ivan Posey, iposey at cwc.edu. That's I-P-O-S-E-Y at cwc.edu. Here on the Wind River Indian Reservation, we have stories to tell, history to share, and wisdom to give. On this show, we share the well-roundedness of our people. In that process, we break the mold placed on us and reclaim our identity. Northern Rappel and Eastern Shoshone, we are two nations and one community. This is Indian Relay, a Wind River Indian Reservation podcast. Haba dos bisihi neteena jaha e nena asi ina na hina ne nena. Hello, relatives. My name is Jaka Black. I belong to the Northern Arapaho tribe, and we're here today with another episode of Indian Relay. On today's episode, we're going to start the discussion around indigenous. Native, First Nations, mental health, and sobriety and addiction. We're going to be dealing with the facts and the hard truth, but we're also going to explore the resources available in the community, and we'll be celebrating and discussing the good that is happening around these topics. I'm here today with Eastern Shoshone Recovery Program, their mental health service, drug addiction treatment center, and counseling center. Today we're joined by Kelly Webb, Kelly graduated from Marquette with a degree in history and has been the director for over 15 years at the Eastern Shoshone Recovery Program. She is also a licensed addiction therapist in the state of Wyoming. Uh, Ivan Posey is also here with us. Mm. Um, Welcome today, Kelly, and good to look look forward to the show here. It's okay. Yeah, Kelly, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Sambechu. As you said, my name is Kelly Webb. I am Eastern Shoshone and Cowlitz. Um, my auntie gave me a Shoshone name, and it's Nangabihi Waipa, which is listening heart woman. And um, she gave that to me um, a great deal because of the work I do. Um, part of the work, most of the work in recovery and addictions is listening, to be able to listen to people, listen to their stories, listen to what they need, and then help them work that out and be, and get into recovery. So that's, uh, I really like that name that she gave me. Mm, yeah, that's beautiful. Mm-hmm. And you've been the director for over 15 years. So can you talk to us how you've seen the program change, have you, how you've seen it improve, um, what kinds of things have you learned and what have you started to do differently over the years? Um, and in that, could you also talk to us 
about the philosophy of the red road of wellbriety. Sure. So, um, actually, I'm going to age myself here. I started in 1992 as an as a adolescent counselor. That's when the tribes, both the Shoshone and Arapaho tribes, were a joint program. And then in 1998, the tribes split the tribal health programs. And I went with the Eastern Shoshone Recovery Program and was an adult counselor. So since 2000, um, I would say around that time, 2000, the, when the tribes split, the programs began to develop their only identity of, of how we were going to help the people um, in the community. And around 2008, I think that's when we made the biggest leap. Probably up from 1992 to 2008, we really worked in terms of Western thought about um, mm. addiction, Western thought about how you help people. So we did a lot of that um, work that way. In 2008, there was a program called, it was an actually a national program called Access to Recovery. And it was um, through SAMHSA and, and developed by um, George Bush, who got sober through his church. So the Access to Recovery program made or gave an opportunity for faith-based organizations to help in recovery, which what it did for Indian country is it opened it wide open to see addiction and treat addiction and in being recovery in a cultural perspective. So I think that's was a time when it really switched. And I saw programs in the Billings area. So just a little background. The Billings area um, IHS office um, what supervises, if you will, the tribes here in Wyoming and the seven tribes up in Montana hmm. with their funding, with their IHS funds. So all those tribes had opportunity to get an access to recovery, and Eastern Shoshone Recovery just tapped into that. So we had the opportunity to really open up the way that we saw um, recovery efforts. And so I would guess that that's when we really went Red Road, mm. the Wellbriety movement. We started participating and getting trainings an awful lot with um, Don Coyas, he started Wellbriety Movement. And what he did, what, which was absolutely clever, is he took all of those uh, various traditions of tribes about resolving um, social issues and put them in a book called Wellbriety. And he started working treatment through the medicine wheel. So looking at four directions, looking at ways that uh, you could recover or you could overcome your social ills through uh, the medicine wheel by practicing those ways. What it, and and the most, one of the most clever things he did is he put the 12 steps, which is the 12 steps of AA, and oftentimes people would say, well, that's a white man's way of, of recovery, but he put the 12 steps in the circle. Mm. And people began to realize that now the twelve steps are just a really good way to map up our map out our lives and live a good way and live in a good way. So that was really brilliant. So um, for Eastern Shoshone Recovery, 
now and since 2008 and before that, everything we do is based in the medicine wheel. So even when we're looking at the brain science, when we're looking at addiction as a brain disorder, we put it back in the medicine wheel and say, where is where is that in the in the in that area? Is it how does it impact you physically? How is addiction impacting you emotionally? How is it impacting you mentally? And how does it ultimately impact you spiritually? And um, then how do you walk in balance after that? So when you're looking at um, recovery based in the medicine wheel and in wellbriety, you're not talking just about stopping the addiction or stopping your use of a substance. You're talking about how do you live a good life and live it in a good way. So at our program, we really look at, we talk a lot about um, that every journey begins with just one step, and that's sort of bringing it back into the 12 steps sort of philosophy, and yet it also looks at how do you take your rightful place in your community, because we all have a place. We all have a seat in the circle. And so when we're looking at that, part of it is living the way the creator intended us. And that means living in a good way, taking our place back in the circle and contributing to your family and your community. So since then, I think people really take hold of their recovery and take responsibility. That's a way that in every individual can take responsibility of their life is realize that they have control over it. Mm. And Because um, before I think a lot of people think, well, addiction's got me. It's got a control over me. And unfortunately, we do lose people to alcohol and drug addiction. We just do. And that's a very sad thing. But for the most part, you can live a good life. You just have to set it aside, set the drink aside, set the drug aside, and you can live a good life. Mm. Yeah, and on the point of taking control of your life and your recovery, I saw this quote that I thought is sort of good news. It um, reads, In indigenous communities, their mental illness originates in the system around them, the environment, the surrounding historical trauma. They are not crazy. They are people responding to trauma in their life. Um, and I like that because us as Indigenous people, as Northern Arapaho people, as Eastern Shoshone people, we are not people of addiction and we are not people of poverty. And the root of all of those things come from what was done to us in the past and removal from land and cultural erasure and trying to wipe us out and trying to find tactics in which they could pretty much just get rid of us. And those were some of the tactics, addiction and poverty. But historically, we are not that. And when we understand that, we can say, okay, that's not who I am. So I'm going to take control. I'm going to change. I'm going to seek out resources. Exactly, yeah. Um, We talk about that a lot. That was one of the tools that um, the Calvary and the U.S. government used Mm -hmm. against indigenous people was alcohol. Mm -hmm. And um, so... Then, and then, in turn, when we consume it ourselves, and it does create problems for each individuals and families. When I think when you talk about trauma, there's a couple other things. I, I really like that quote, too. A couple other things that I know that um, trauma looks like bad behavior, 
when I heard about, when we talk about the, um, in not only intergenerational trauma, but individual trauma, that's what we want to look at, is trauma looks like bad behavior. And to me, that means that it's out-of-control behavior. And so when we look at that, it's just not people being bad people. Mm. It's people trying to, like you said, work out their trauma in a way that they don't have the tools presently, perhaps, to work out it in a more positive manner. The other thing I, that is trauma is cumulative, and that speaks to what you were saying, that intergenerational trauma. Not only in 2020 are we carrying probably any personal trauma that we, we may have, whether it's through accidents, um, grief, loss, those kinds of things. That's our trauma that we may be experiencing this day, but we're also carrying the trauma, the cumulative trauma of our ancestors. So that's the stuff that we have to resolve, that's the stuff we have to sort of look at and say, wow, what part of this is not mine that I'm carrying? What part of this shame and this guilt of oppression, of colonialism that I'm carrying and that I just no need, don't no longer have to carry? It's not mine. And how do I strengthen myself? So a lot of those, what we know is culture. Um, when those are other phrases, you know, like about, we're talking about resiliency. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the important things is um, we're here today. Uh, oftentimes, we may not look like our ancestors. Some of us um, don't always look like them. We might be lighter skinned. We might be um, different in shape and size. But we are, that is their blood that runs through us. So yeah. we are the result of the um, U.S. attempt to annihilate our people, but they didn't. It was a poor attempt. So that's one of the things that's really important, that we're resilient, that we're here. I think the other thing is that we have to, I have a sister named Theda Newbrest, and she always talks about, Kelly, we have to decolonize our minds. And when she first started talking about that, she said, we have to look at how much of us are, are in acculturation. And I said, See, I was born into acculturation. And she said, true. You know, right now it's very hard to not be have some part of acculturation in each and every one of our lives, whether it's the way we dress or who we come in contact with us. Some of us may have other blood rather than just our native blood. So there's that pieces of acculturation. But she said, no, we have to decolonize our mind. And I think that's really important. I think that's sort of what black, black Lives Matters also is trying to say is we have to begin to realize that we are not only what we've been told about ourselves yeah, in yes, history yes. that have only been a perspective of, um, of a great country. And I'm not saying that we're not a great country. I'm just saying that we have to watch of that perspective and what's taught about us particularly people who are people of color, marginalized people, and people who weren't always in the formulation of the Constitution. I think it's amazing that the formulators of that Constitution talked about people, all people being equal. But when they were forming that, that's really not what they were thinking, mm, you know, yeah. um, particularly indigenous people and um Black people, that's not what they were thinking. Mm -hmm. So it's amazing that in this time, 
that we assert ourselves in every one of those rights, um, that we are equal under the law, and we are equal in our humanity. So um, it's an exciting time right now, actually. And it's an exciting time for people in recovery because, I'm going to wrap that around there, is recovery lends itself to being strong and asserting yourself and showing those strengths that we have within us. And so recovery people really can do a lot for their communities. I see people who get into recovery and do amazing things, Mm. just amazing things for themselves and their families. So I really, people will often say, man, your, your work must be really hard. That's a difficult job. And I'm like, it is a job I enjoy every day. I love coming to work. I, I enjoy the people I work with. I enjoy my staff at Eastern Shoshone Recovery. They're really good people. So they exhibit a part of our humanity that um, really is beautiful, mm. I think. Mm-hmm. I want to get back to some of the first comments you were making about when you first started, a lot of your approach was sort of westernized. Um, And I think a lot of programs and providers lack the sensitivity to Native and Indigenous cultures, um, and that can sort of prevent Native and Indigenous people from receiving treatment, which I think is why Eastern Shoshone recovery is so important. Um, And there was a difference in culture, and I read somewhere maybe you can speak to this more, that most Native cultures didn't even have words or language around mental health Mm -hmm. or, like, mental health disorders and types of things like that. And I actually saw this other quote and statistic that's kind of wild. It says, the North Plains people, for the North Plains people, the concept of mental illness was imposed in 1889 when the first federal mental hospital for an ethnic group, and it was called the Hiawatha Asylum for Insane Indians. Um, and they created that institute because they thought that Native Americans, that the mental health issues that Natives started feeling was its own special, unique thing. But the fact is the asylum was developed during a time when the U.S. Congress had passed a federal law that prohibited indigenous peoples from practicing their own customs and their own spiritual rights. So immediately when any type of discussion of mental illness with indigenous and native peoples began, there was just a huge cultural disconnect. Um, So can you talk about the Western approach as compared to the cultural aspect of it and how the Westernization has played a role in what the work you're doing today? Right. I think when I look at the Western approach, it really is about, well, and that has changed as well. As we, I think, I would say in the last 25 years or so, when we started looking at, um, and in the Western world, it'll be called co-occurring, um, where people have mental health and substance abuse and substance use issues. In fact, I had a, um, I took a course, a graduate course, and the professor said, if for about about co-occurring is if you didn't have a mental illness going into treatment, you definitely have one coming out of treatment. And he sort of said that tongue-in-cheek, but what he was indicating is sort of the same thing about trauma, about that oftentimes alcohol and drug use are tools to deal with our trauma. They're coping mechanisms for a number of people. And 
their poor coping mechanisms, but that's what they know how to cope. And it worked for a while, and then as the substance use and addiction progresses, it doesn't work the same way anymore. So that's sort of the, the combination where you have to really sort of look at that. And I think some of the stuff on the Western side, the brain science and um, the parts of it that they begin, and trauma, when they look at trauma, as they look at DNA, um, epigenetics, epigenetics, there you go. (laughs) (laughs) As they look at those, as we begin to expand, we always tease that science is catching up what our ancestors always knew, Mm, you know, about that, uh, you know, the whole thing, we're all related, but they're talking about everything is related, everything. So um, as you... So when we look at it now in a more cultural sp- perspective, <clears throat> instead of saying people you know are crazy or mentally ill, it's about balance. Are we walking in balance? And what do we need to do? And you're right, I think long before that, when customs and um, ceremonies were taken away, that's how they resolved social, social issues. And that's how they probably resolved being unbalanced yeah. or having an imbalance in their life so that those things that they the they did whether they were yearly ceremonies or whether they were um, ceremonies of age and becoming a certain you know becoming a man becoming a woman uh, those kinds of things they were to remind us that we're connected they were to remind us that we're all in this together, we're all related. So take those things away, and um, then, of course, here, at the same time, I'm introducing alcohol to you, then you're going to cope that way, right? Mm, Yeah. And so that I'm sure those insane asylums were full of people who had, were in what today would be called end stages of alcoholism, too, Um, because alcoholism can couldn't help you go insane it makes you go insane Mm. in fact AA talks about that the AA book talks about going insane that's what insanity is Mm. so all those things are really interestingly when you start looking at them how it really evolved and I think when we talk about western medicine and so forth it could learn a lot from indigenous people all around the world. I agree. I agree with that. It could learn a lot about how to help people live in balance rather than just eliminate um, a a criteria or Mm. eliminate a symptom. That makes sense. We're not talking about eliminate symptoms. We really want to live in a a good way. So I think there's a lot to be said for um, cultural interventions in, in, in not just recovery and addiction, but in a lot of areas of of science and medicine. Mm. Yeah, and I'm glad that you used the word connected because the next point I wanted to bring in was the idea of connectedness. And like you were saying, we relied on our communities and our ceremonies and our families as ways to help us stay on balance. Um, so historically, we were a connected people and we have to get back to that type of ideology. Um, so how do you incorporate community and being connected with the people that you're working with? And 
I guess for families of people that are going through the process of recovery or the process of healing from mental issues, what would your advice to those families be in terms of connectedness and community? Right. I think one thing would be is that um, when we're looking at addiction, we know that it's a family disease. There might be the one person who is the user, but all the rest of us get impacted by that use. Or we've gotten impacted by it, you know, they'd call it codependency or all those kinds of issues, but we're all impacted, and we're all impacted by trauma as well. So everybody has to begin to look at how they play a part in that and how they can heal from it also. So we really can't heal in isolation. It's very difficult. I can get sober, perhaps, in isolation. Then I just sort of, you know, remove myself from all the other people. But I can't be happy that way because mm. we're we live in community. Um, we live in relationship. So mending relationships is really important. And I think that um, some of those things we've adopted in our program, but uh, also I think those are there if we begin to explore. So if you go to your elders and ask those questions of them and you re redesign family gatherings and stuff, that that they be sober gatherings. Mm, and yeah. you begin to heal as a family. What the medicine wheel teaches us is that we each have a medicine wheel. So um, I can positively or negatively impact my family and then my family if i'm positively impacting my family my positive family will impact my tribe and then i can positively impact the nation mm. same as same as reverse too right i can negatively impact my family i can negatively impact the tribe so mm. that's how we're connected so we have to make a choice are we going to choose to positively impact family and community, or are we going to negatively impact family and community? So at ESR, we talk about how we change that, how we take responsibility, and then begin to positively impact our families and communities. And and then thusly will impact our grandchildren and will change their lives. And the trippy thing about that the sort of metaphysical thing about that, the DNA thing about that, is we do change it. We're not only changing um, the physical stuff, like I'm being positive and saying things positively, but I'm actually healing the trauma of our ancestors, and I'm changing the world for the future mm. for our grandkids. Because if we're looking at it um, through our DNA, I'm changing their DNA. I'm making them more strong, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So this episode is a really good start and a really good discussion to have. And as I mentioned earlier, a lot of indigenous cultures didn't really have a lot of language surrounding mental health. Um, do you think... I think it's changed in the past couple of years, but do you think right now that there is sort of a negative stigma around talking about mental health? I think there is a stigma about mental health. 
And um, but it, I don't think it came from indigenous people or, or within the culture. I think the stigma came with um, seeking help at an institution or seeking help at the clinic. Like mm. that would be, and and I, we see it a lot. We'll have family members or teachers or others who um, have a, an individual that may be suicidal or may be having um, a difficult time, and they'll say, oh, I don't know what to do. Uh, do I take him to the mental health counselor? And I think, you know, and I don't want to put mental health counselors out of a job or even myself out of a job for that, but I'll know I would like to be out of a job <laughs> if, if we could eradicate, yeah, yeah. <laughs> eradicate addiction. But I think what we have to realize is, once again, that connection. Like, we all can do something. We can love our family yes. And, yes. and nourish them and, and help them and care for them in the best way that we know how and then get them if things get to the place where there may be need for professional intervention, that those resources are there and that we know that those are there. But that's not – we don't want to let people – suffer to the point where that's where we that's where the intervention is mm. we want interventions when they're babies and holding them and nourishing them and hugging them yes. and and being there for them then they grow up healthier so um it really is in my thoughts is it's a switch in like we were talking like positive norming we have to switch the way we see ourselves we are not um <clears throat> Excuse me. We're not um, sad, hopeless people. Yeah, we are strong, confident yep. people. And when we switch that norm, then we're we're raising strong and confident people. Yeah. So, in in all aspects, and then we have to do that through the education system. We have to do that through the health system. Like we have to learn how to take care of ourselves. Uh, so often in our groups, for example. When was the last time you got a physical? And people are going years without even going to the doctor. They only go to the doctor when they're sick. So I think that sort of norming, we've been taught to only go when we're sick. And then we're reluctant then because we don't want to be told that we're sick. Mm. You know, like, I don't want to go because I don't want to get cancer. Like, as if going to the doctor is what gives us cancer. But so if we if we do it on the front end and we're, we're going to physical, get our physical, t- you know, every year and we're, you know, eating healthier and all those kinds of things holistically looking at our lives, then we're positive norming the other way. We, we're going back to, like you said, what our ancestors, healthy, strong people yeah, and um, who cared about each other. And so I don't know if that answers it at all, mm. but that's, no, that sort was of back answer. how that is. Well, your um, discussion or talk about going to the doctor and in these trying times that we're living now with the pandemic and some of those, and uh, we all know some um, people in recovery have been sent by the court system. Um, how has that worked the last three months in terms of this pandemic? Uh, the courts were shut down at one time. Uh, there's social distancing. Um, there's people that's already been in a program or that are continuing with the program. New people coming in. How did you guys adapt to that? 
Um, and on that, can you also touch on, I saw that you've moved online digitally um, and you also have the Path to Wellness app. Yeah. Um, which I think is great that you've adjusted in this time. So can yeah. you also talk about those? So those are, yeah, you're right. And isolation is not good for anyone. And isolation is horrible for people with addictions because your brain just starts saying, you know, you have 24 hours today to fill up, so let's fill it up how we used to fill it up kind of thing. And so isolation hasn't been good. So immediately what we tried to do is is do more online. Immediately we had workbooks that people could do that they could take home with them and then interact with us. We relied, you're right, at Eastern Shoshone Recovery, we rely on group process an awful lot. Like, that's the biggest portion. And our um, sweats and events that we hold, so community events. So gathering together was a real big portion of our of our programming. So when COVID hit, we could feel the isolation in our offices, too. Mm. And um, so we did those things. We tried to go on digital. We've got some webinars going. We developed a Facebook page and... We have a couple of our staff that really post a lot to that Facebook. We have a website, um, www.easterntoshonerecovery.org, and that's got some information on it. We we collaborated with the University of Wisconsin-Madison. They've been developing an HS app. It was an app for opiate addiction for 10 years now, and we just sort of stumbled onto that and then collaborated with them to develop our own Path to Wellness app. So that's something we can do. There's a discussion board. There's recovery resources. So it's really about trying to do as much digitally as we can. But I think you're right. I mean, it's hard to fill that relationship piece digitally all the time because there's there's just something about being face-to-face. There's something about being present. And um, that can always be fulfilled digitally. But we are trying those things. The workbooks help. They can call us. So we have a number of people. And it's been more recent lately is just saying, when are groups starting? When are groups starting? So I have the tape measure out, and we're measuring chairs, distance. We've got masks. We've been getting PPE. Um trying to get shields, trying to get masks, and hand sanitizer, which is coveted now, right? Hand sanitizer. Whoever thought hand sanitizer would right. be like the most important <laughs> thing in your life, but it is. So those kinds of things so that we can get back in um, community, and hopefully soon we can do that. But, yeah, so we have gone. That's all brand new. And honestly, what I've done is surround my pe- myself with people who are really good at digital because – I barely can answer my phone. My daughters could speak to that. um, So I'm not very good at the technology, but we have a lot of people who are. And we'll have some really good, I'll make a pitch. We have some really good people coming up. We're having um, an individual, his his name is Corey Reitert, and he is really actually going to talk about brain science and stuff so that those pieces of Western medicine that we know that is in common with all of us. We all have the same brain, that kind of thing. And um, he's going to do some webinars on that. And then Dee Bigfoot, she's out of the University of Oklahoma, and she's going to do some webinars for us on trauma, on childhood trauma, on resiliency, on ways that we can um, be in recovery and stuff and, and take good care of ourselves. So those are coming up. 
we'll be advertising that on our Facebook awesome. and our website and stuff. So cool. Um, and you mentioned the number. I think I have it here. Is it three zero seven eight five six seven four eight nine? No, it's three three zero seven three three five one one six nine is our okay. uh, office number. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, I grabbed that number off off of Facebook, and it's uh, a twenty four hour crisis line. Yes, that is a crisis line. Yeah. yeah. It's interesting because you it made me laugh because the other day we were looking at Google and if you Google Shoshone recovery it looks like an abandoned building and I'm like that's <laughs> not us <laughs> and if you Google Eastern Shoshone recovery it gives our address which is number seven Shipton Lane but if someone ever tried to put that in their GPS you can't get to it because we're in the middle of a field so <laughs> that's rural right that's you can't get more rural than being in the middle of a field I guess but. Um, <laughs> It's funny how to negotiate through that digital world and still be rural because it's very hard in rural America. And that's why some of the problems that we're having with the Path to Wellness so is um, people being able to have enough data. So we're helping them. If, if you want to get on the Path to Wellness and you want to use your phone and you don't have enough data, we'll supplement that data for you. So we'll help, help pay for that data. That's really cool. Yeah. Uh, the, the last 30 years, we talked to an educator from Rampo School who works with the elders and stuff, and we talked about the language and how that evolved. I mean, I, I mentioned when I went to school, at grade school, there was no Indian teachers. There was no uh, language classes. And um, it's almost the same with recovery, right? I mean, 30, 40 years ago, uh, there wasn't opportunities for tribal people to go and learn more about uh, wellness through the cultural or traditional lens, you know. But now it's a lot different, and it's still evolving. But then it's also um, important, I think, to say that, and I don't think it's the issue all the time, but um, one size doesn't fit all. Um, and, you know, there was a time when I was on a council where a parent who was a um, tribal person came in and... Uh, wanted us not to have her her uh, youth participate in sweat lodges and stuff and saying they wasn't raised like that, you know. And I think they have made amends for how to approach that. But I guess, like I said, one size doesn't fit all, doesn't fit the size for individuals, although the majority do intend to grasp the traditional and cultural also. True, yes. And, and there's a variety of ways. You know, I think it, like you were saying, and I, I mean, at one time, I think when people thought, i got to go to treatment or i got to go to rehab, those yeah. would have been the buzzwords. And what they were talking about was residential treatment. And now people will say, i got to go to treatment. And it could be outpatient. For example, we're an outpatient program in those terms when we're looking at our, license, at our certification. We're outpatient, so we have intensive programming and we have just outpatient programming so there is a variety of ways let's say there the variety of ways of getting sober is as numerous as the people getting sober each one of us walk our own path we walk the way we walk in our recovery people will say like you didn't help because you didn't get my relative my family member sober well i'm the only, i can own i only keep myself sober that's that's the, the limit of my power i have power over myself and um, but I can help. I can assist, 
And you're right. There's a variety of ways. And when people come to our program, everybody gets um, the understanding and the and the concept of wellbriety. And we talk about in terms of the medicine wheel. But the beauty of the medicine wheel is that it does fit everybody in that sense because we we all are spiritually, mentally, emotionally, and physically impacted. So. When we begin to look at it that way and people begin to catch on to those concepts, then they can apply it, whether if their faith-based in, is in their traditions or if their faith-based is in um, a Christian or another faith-based. So it does fit in that sense. And there are people who don't go sweat. And in, in, in tribal ways, too, there are you know, customs and protocol on any number of those ceremonies, I would say. So we want to be cognizant of that and and and, and be um, supportive of people's ways that they want to get sober or the ways that they want to get help and seek help. So we'll guide them to that. So if you know someone isn't you know says no, I want to be in my Christian religion, then you know we can help them find those people, those resources that they want. And if they're going to residential treatment, we have residential treatments that are um, culturally based, and then we have residential treatments that are in the state of Wyoming and stuff, and they may have a different approach. So you really do, you're right, you really try to see what the person's needs are, where they need, uh, and where they'll find success. I think that's the most important thing is where they will find support and success so that then they can lead the life that they want. And, and we talked about one time about um, we have a larger recovery population on the Wind River and probably throughout Indian country. But as uh, Jocka had mentioned earlier about being positive and stuff, sometimes we don't celebrate that enough. You know, somebody that's in recovery and still in recovery and had 30 years or 20 years, or even 60 days, we don't recover, or we don't celebrate those enough. And um, like we said, there's a larger recovered population on Wind River, but they, they're they quiet about it. And that's okay, you know, because um, in the Western world, we don't really talk about some of that stuff. But um, I think that part's coming, I would think. I think so, too. I think there's a we have a, this billboard outside our building, and... One of the, and I'll paraphrase it, but the, one of the quotes is that everybody's prayers helps everybody. Mm-hmm. So um, that's sort of, once again, that metaphysical stuff. Like, like, as long as we're making positive thoughts in the world, you move towards and become that which you think about. So the more positive things that we can look forward to, that stuff's going to come back to us. That stuff we, we, we reap what we sow, right? So I think it's interesting. You're right. I think there's a large population of people who are clean and sober, who are living good lives. And I think it's interesting when our when our people who are coming to the program are getting sober, they'll experience that because they'll see an old person in the store who will whisper in their ear, I'm watching you and I see you're doing good for yourself. That's all they say. Or they'll say, I'm praying for you, boy. And that's all they say. But they're watching, and that's the reverse. Once again, yeah, the once it's saying the squeaky wheel gets the no, gets the attention. That's it. When all we're focusing on is the disruptiveness of of 
these disorders, this trauma, and this addiction, when we're always focused on that, that's what we're always going to see. But if we're focused on the beauty of our people, the beauty of the Wind River, the 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 um, ultimate resources that it has, then we'll start to using those too. Maya Angelou has a, a saying that she said that she's learned um, to have patience because she knows that people do what they know to do, not what they're supposed to do, not what they say they're going to do, but what they know to do. So I have patience that they'll learn and do better. And I, I have that on my because I think about that all the time, because you'll have people who will relapse, and, and they, they feel bad about themselves. So I don't, have to be, I don't have to verbally, you know, reprimand them. They've already done it enough. I mean, they're in their head, they have reprimanded themselves 10 times the amount that I. So all I have to do is support them and say, welcome back. Let's start. Let's, what did you learn? What did you learn from that relapse that you can do differently now? And then you'll have longer time on. And you're right. In our groups, we we sit in a circle, and so I don't. We don't separate. Technically, in treatment, you have level two, which is intensive, and level one. And and a long time ago, for some time, in in some treatment centers, you still don't mix the populations, if you will. We all sit in a circle. So any given day at ESR, we might have someone who has six months sobriety on them, sitting next to someone who has two days sobriety on them that just walked through that door and are scared and are worried and feel that they may be judged. But then they realize, man, this guy's got six months. I could get six months because this guy's no different than me. And, um, and that's the beauty of that relationship piece is that we can – we can begin to realize we all can achieve that 30, 40 years. Mm-hmm. Every one of us can, but it, it's achieved each day. Mm. You know, it's achieved one day at a time. Yeah. And before we conclude the show today, can you, you mentioned the 12 steps, 12 steps. Can you quickly or however long you want, uh, just run through what those 12 are and then maybe also talk about the medicine circle that you were mentioning a little bit as opposed to a more linear path. Right. So, wow, you put me on the spot in the 12 steps. (laughs) I cannot name all 12 steps, but (laughs) Myron would be very angry with me because that's the first thing he says when people come in and say, what's the first step? (laughs) And the first step really is I am powerless over alcohol, and I've come to realize that a power greater than me can help restore me into balance, basically. And then the 12 steps go around about what we can do. I don't even have my glasses, so that's not going to (laughs) help. It really is about what we can do daily. It's about knowing that we've made mistakes, being honest about those mistakes, and admitting that we made those mistakes, not only to ourselves, but to another person. And then making amends for those mistakes and um, actually taking responsibility for them. And then the last few steps are really about then carrying this message to our fellow alcoholics, carrying the message to other people, and living that good one, and every day doing that. So really what the 12 steps are intended is when you're talking about it literally, people will say, well, I went to treatment and residential, and I got to step four, which is beginning to make amends. And then a lot of people will just stop, because literally you really don't – 
that's a that's a tricky area, right? But we don't live our life linearly, other than when we age, you know, like last year I was this age and now I'm a year older, but we really live our life cir- in a circle. And um, so what the 12 steps, when, we, when Don Coyce put them in a circle, he made people realize that we actually could live the 12 steps every day. We get up, we say our prayers, we ask the creator for help and blessings. And we, you know, say that I'm humble and I want to be humble in every in, in this day and recognize where I'm making mistakes. And then we make a mistake, we make amends, we apologize. And then in the evening and stuff, and then we help our fellow human being. We, we you know, carry groceries out for someone or we do a kind act. And in the evening, we, we sort of analyze what our day was like, like what was good about our day. That's one of the things, actually, I'm going to give a little bit of advice to people. That's one of the things you can do with your children. What was good about today? What did you enjoy today? What was hard about today? And then what can we do differently? You can, you know, at dinner time, at bedtime, then say your prayers. And that's the 12 steps. And then asking God for forgiveness again or the creator and then move again to the next day. So it really is about those, those rituals that we can do. The 12 steps is really a ritual to live a good life. Mm-hmm. And it is exactly what, when I talk to traditional people, exactly what our ancestors did, right? Get up in the morning. You pray with the sun coming up. You drink water because water is really important. That's a relationship. And then throughout the day, if you make a mistake, you apologize. You make a mistake, you try to change it. And then um, you don't hold on to that. That, If you live that life in a daily life, a routine, you don't hold on to resentments. You don't hold on to anger. You can let that stuff go, and it doesn't move into the next day with you. So that's sort of living it in a circle. That's what the medicine will says. And the medicine will is really just about being cognizant physically, mentally, emotionally, and ultimately spiritually, how we get impacted um, every day in relationship, in things that we're doing, in our work, um, in our mindfulness, all those things. Uh, and then we can, we can go to bed. We can you know, lay our head down and rest um, knowing that that day was a, a day filled with happiness, or um, it may have been a day filled with some some difficulties, but we can also let that go too. Yeah, uh, and one more thing along the sitting down and analyzing your day that seems to me to be a really good way to sort of map and understand your emotions um, and. How have you viewed understanding emotions when dealing with mental health? Because I've heard that when we teach our children to acknowledge their emotions and to understand and engage with their emotions, it can really help them as they're growing older to have a maturity. Right. So what is, it's called cognitive behavioral therapy in the Western world, but what it is is our emotions aren't just something that comes to us. We have a thought, and then we have an emotion about that thought, and then we'll have a behavior. So when we're looking at behaviors, if it's with our children or whomever, we don't want to just look at the behavior. We want to help them realize, like, what, are, what were you feeling? Then what were you thinking? And ultimately, what we control is the way we think. We, can, can, we can't 
often control things outside of us or other people. We can't control uh, um, the weather or any of those things, but we can control the way we react to them. And how we react is the way we're thinking about it. Earlier when I said um, you move towards and become that which you think about, so that's the importance when we're helping with our children is is helping them with positive thoughts. What are you thinking? And, you know, like your little kids will say, you made me angry. And you can help them saying, but why are you angry? And help them sort of look at what their thoughts are, sort of, and kind of go through that, um, feeling out what their thoughts are. And oftentimes, those negative emotions can be a result of uh, negative thoughts, or they are a result of negative thoughts. So we change the way we think, we can change the way we feel, and then we can change the way we behave or the way we react to something. And um, mindfulness is just that, being mindful, thinking about what what's going on with us, sort of having a self-examination about that. Uh, if you um, journal, that's really a great way of doing that. A lot of people will journal in the evening because then they can, once it's out on paper, then it also has this ability to be outside of us and we can analyze it a little better. It's really sort of hard to analyze when it's all inside because when we're looking inside, it's ego. It's, what about me? You know, what, what, what is this about me? And um, you can get sort of sidetracked on that if we're always looking at me. So you get it out on paper, you think about others, those kinds of things are just little ways that you can help your kids. Yeah. Those are some really awesome activities and advice. So thank you for that. And before we end the show today, I just want to say to all of our relatives out there who are dealing with any mental health issues or any type of addiction, there are resources available for you. Eastern Shoshone Recovery is here. You can find their Facebook with their contact information on it. Uh, at a later episode, we'll also have White Buffalo Recovery. They're also available for you. And I just want to make it a point, and Kelly, if I miss anything or say anything incorrect, please correct me. But for all our relatives out there, you are not your addiction, and we are not a people of addiction. And because of that, we can make the decision to change and can make the choice to seek out help. And I also want to say one more thing to just the community as a whole that for your relatives that may be dealing with these types of issues, make sure that we love them. Like Kelly was saying, make sure we're patient with them. Uh, it's very important for their process of healing and recovery. And we are all really healing in one way or another, and we all need to be patient with each other. And I also want to touch on the last thing you said to the parents um, please allow kids to feel their emotions, allow them to engage and understand their emotions. You know, don't make fun of each other for their emotions. And I think, you know, I don't want to simplify or, yeah, I don't want to simplify the process, but I think with taking these initial steps, we can really start building to be the strong people that we were made to be. Oh, I agree. No, you said that perfectly. I would just add that it takes work. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we can't sit back and mm -hmm. just and wishful think it. We have to every day work it. Um, we, every day we have to be cognizant of that day and grateful for that day. 
and um, make it the best day we can. Yeah. Yeah, well, absolutely. Thank you for yeah. having me here. Sorry if it's sort of disjointed. That's just the way I think. <laughs> no, I think there's a, a lot of good stuff in there. And I want to challenge people, too, that if there's anything that Kelly mentioned that maybe we didn't dive into as much as you wanted to do, as much as you wanted us to, um, I would just challenge you to do the research yourself also. Um, you know, a quick Google search, a quick article can really go a long way in how we engage with each other. So please don't be afraid to do that work as well. Absolutely. Great, Kelly. Thank you so much. This thank was you. very informational and educational, and I want to thank you for your time, and thank you for all the work you're doing well, with Eastern you. Shoshone Recovery. I appreciate it. Yes, who for you and your staff are assisting in the community and you're know, helping people uh, address their needs, Absolutely. In our, which in turn turns into our community needs. Absolutely, Absolutely. yeah. Well, and we used to always have coffee and treats and We'll still have those. We'll probably just have to serve him with a mask on and <laughs> and with a yardstick since we have to be six feet apart or whatever. <laughs> but we'll adjust. We'll adjust to this new new normal. But um, we'll yeah, the program is there for people definitely. Great, awesome, and one last thing for all of our relatives out there who have been in recovery for however amount of time, and for those that are just now seeking help, I want to just congratulate you. On your sobriety, congratulate you on your fight, on your walk. We see you, we love you, we need you, and we acknowledge you. Very good. Today's episode was brought to you by the Wyoming Department of Transportation, a.k.a. YDOT. It was also brought to you by the Central Wyoming College Institute of Tribal Learning. I'd also like to send a special shout-out to Noah Pakotis and Just James out of DCM Collective, for the original intro music and for the outro song. You can find them on Instagram at DCM Collectives. They have a lot of good music projects coming out. You can check them out. They're working with some really big artists. I'm excited for them. I want to say ha-ho to our relatives over at DCM Collective. You can also find us on all podcast platforms. We are on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. You can also find us on the 10Cast website. We also have a Facebook page and an Instagram page. So please like and follow and share. We really want to engage with the community. We want to start interacting with y'all more and we're excited to do that. We have a lot of great episodes coming up. So please stay tuned. And with that, I want to say wahey and ha-hoo. Have a Mm -hmm. good day. Stay safe, everyone. This is Cody Beers with the Wyoming Department of Transportation. YDAT is proud to help bring you the Indian Relay podcast and to partner with the Eastern Shoshone and Northern Arapaho tribes. Our goal is to keep people safe on our local highways. Did you know that Wyoming has averaged 1,100 alcohol-involved crashes annually in each of the last 10 years and that more than 50 people die every year as a result of drunk driving. We can do better. We must. Celebrate life. Drive sober. Hey, I'm David. And I'm Patrick. I love to hunt. I love to fish. The bottom line is, we love Wyoming's great outdoors and all the opportunities it provides for us. And that's what we discuss in depth on the Ragcast Outdoors podcast. We chat with experts, share tips, recipes, 
and some of our favorite stories. It's just like hanging around the campfire with your buddies. Find Radcast Outdoors on Apple, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app.